Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And this week we're going to be um, looking at verses 11 all the way through to 20. Verses 11 all the way through to 20. If you're new, my name is Obed. Um, I'm one of the leaders here at King's Cross Church. And we are very, very thankful that you have decided to um, dedicate this portion of your Sunday to being with us. Now, um, I think Josh may have mentioned it. I'm not sure. It, uh, like, it's a hot day, okay? <laughs> it's a hot day. And if you are getting really, really hot, you are you, you know, feel free to move over to a shady place. That room is available for you as well. Also in that room, there's plenty of iced water um, for you to help you cool down. And so make sure that you do that, okay? Like, don't get overheated here this morning. Don't want that to happen to you. All right, Acts chapter 11, um, sorry, 19 verse 11 to 20. Um, I'm going to read, and as I read, do your best to follow along. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, help us understand in ways beyond our natural abilities. God, there is, you desire to not only speak to us, but you desire for us to hear and to live out everything we're going to learn from you this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts. I pray that you would remove anything in us 
that is an obstacle um, for you to speak and illuminate your word. We love you. And we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, what I like to do most mornings is to go take a walk um, at the local park, a park across the street, Kate Sessions Park, which is, by the way, um, one of the nicest parks um, in San Diego. Um, and I like to walk around there because it helps me um, understand or, 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 or it helps me know and understand um, what we're here for as a church. Um, when I'm around the locals, when I'm around the um, group, you know, over at the park doing yoga, when I'm around the kids that are playing hockey and um, parents in the playground, um, it helps me bring to reality what we're currently doing here, what we are all about. Um, and we are all about being a church family on mission with Jesus. That is why we're here. Our ultimate goal of being here um, is it, not to make a name for ourselves. It's not to make money. It's not to enjoy all that San Diego has for us. Um, our ultimate goal, if you are a Christian, um, is to be part of a church family and be on mission with Jesus. That is why we're here. And so I, I love being where the locals are. Um, it helps me um, really understand why we're here and it helps me realize or, or yeah, realize and put into practice um, our mission as a church. Now, this morning, uh, what's interesting about this story is that there's just so much in it that, um, th that will encourage us and that will inspire us. And there's also so many things in this story that is really, really complex. And so um, this morning, what I want us to do, yeah, I want us to lead us in a study of this fascinating story. And I want to use three scenes for us to do it in, okay? Um, scene one, um, I want to look at the reality of miracles. Scene two, the misuse of Jesus' name. And scene three, um, the right response, if you're making notes, right? And so let's look at scene one, the reality of miracles. Look at verse 11 again. If you remember, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Stop right there. Ajit Fernando, who's a scholar and an author, um, describes Ephesus as a city that had a reputation for the practice of magical arts. This means if you were to get into a time machine and travel some 2,000 years back to the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, you will realize this about the city, that the city um, um, was all about the practice of magic and sorcery. They were obsessed um, with the practice of magic and sorcery. But the interesting thing about this is ever since the Apostle Paul arrived in the city and began to preach the gospel and began to perform miracles, the citizens of Ephesus, just, they've just been in awe of what they've seen Paul doing. And the reason why is they've never seen 
anyone do the things Paul has been doing. The expression in verse 11, extraordinary miracles, right? If you look at that, um, it basically means that whatever miracles God was doing through Paul in Ephesus, it was unusual. David Guzik, who's also um, a Bible scholar and author, explains that even if we should expect miracles, these were the miracles we should never expect. And so, what were these unusual and extraordinary miracles being done by God through Paul in Ephesus. What did they look like? Look at um, uh, verse 11 again, and then we're going to read verse 12 to discover. Okay, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. This is crazy. Isn't this extraordinary? God is working in ways unheard of in Ephesus that locals have not seen anything like this before. Paul's handkerchiefs, all right, or aprons have the ability to heal and deliver people. How was this possible? How did it all work? We're not entirely sure, but, right, we can probably um, look back at the life of Jesus and realize that something like this happened um, when Jesus was alive. Like people would touch the hem of his garment and guess what? People would be healed. Also, um, back in Acts, earlier in Acts, that Peter, um, it was the same thing, Peter's shadow was healing people. And so, you know, this is not new to Paul, but to the Ephesians, it was really, really unique and new and unusual. And so God is performing extraordinary miracles through Paul that has left a city um, who is obsessed with miracles in awe. And so at this point, the question many of you are probably thinking is this, does God still do miracles like this today? And I'm not just talking about, you know, handkerchiefs and um, aprons, having the ability to heal and heal people and deliver people from evil spirits. But if, if you've been with us in Acts, some, some crazy, extraordinary miracles have happened. And we have to ask ourselves, does God still do miracles like this in our day. And the reason why we ask that is because we look at the book of Acts and it doesn't quite look the same in terms of what's happening. It doesn't quite look the same in our day and age. And so, is it okay for us to expect God to do extraordinary miracles similar to what we've seen, um, we've been reading about in the book of Acts and now in Ephesus? Some people would answer and say, absolutely, of course, yes, we should expect God to do extraordinary miracles. Um, and people in this camp, some of them have gone a little bit too far, and they're, you know, they, you know, they're online and they're buying and selling prayer cloths, okay, um, that they say have the ability to heal people, okay? And so, some people would say yes. And while some people believe in miracles, that God can do miracles, 
Others in our culture just don't believe in miracles at all. They're convinced miracles are for the naive ancient mind and not for modern scientific people like us. In fact, the influence of science continues to dismiss belief in miraculous events. In 1937, um, German physicist Max Planck made this prediction. This is 1937. He made this prediction. Faith in miracles must yield ground. Step by step, the steady and firm advance of the forces of science will plunder it. <laughs> its defeat is a mere matter of time. In 1937, this um, German physicist basically came out and said, look, soon science will prove right, that miracles don't exist. And so, like we've seen briefly, some people are super obsessed with miracles and others reject the existence of miracles. These are, I would say, the two extremes um, views of miracles at play in our culture. And so as a church, what do we believe? Um, what do we think about miracles? This is what we think. As a church, we're neither obsessed with miracles, nor do we reject the existence of miracles. We aim to be in the radical middle somewhere. Let me explain. We believe God still can and does extraordinary miracles today. And I'm not just talking about like, so this week, I love when I'm, you know, when I'm preparing my sermon, I like to meet people. And whenever I meet them, I ask them a question in relation to my sermon. And so this week I met um, a lady and um, I said to her, hey, what are your thoughts on miracles? <laughs> okay. And she said to me, like, um, this is my definition of miracles. Everything is a miracle. Um, she said, the fact that I have been sober, okay, for 20 years is a miracle. And she also said, the fact that, uh, you know, in my group, okay, the person that has been sober for one day is a miracle. And so when, when I talk about us believing in miracles, you know, that's kind of her definition of it. I am talking about instances where God um, does unusual and extraordinary things in our world. And as a church, we believe God still does that to this day. But we also believe the kinds of miracles he did through his people in the book of Acts were done for a specific purpose, okay? To do this, to authenticate that Peter or Paul or whoever did that were God's people doing God's work, okay? You've just got to understand this. Paul was super against the church. He was opposed to the church of Christ and he wanted to do everything in power to destroy Christianity. And then suddenly he gets saved, <laughs> right? And then people are like, who is this guy? We thought he, was, he hated Christianity and now he's all about Jesus. And so in those days, um, I believe that God was doing specific miracles through the Apostle Paul in order to authenticate to everyone that, man, Paul is legit. These, these, these apostles are legit. 
And they're my people, and they are doing my work. So God does do miracles, right? Extraordinary miracles in our day. But we must be careful not to take miraculous events from Acts and assume that they will be a normal part of our church today. We must be careful of that. Because if we're not, we're going to buy into um, the, 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 this whole thing. There's just so much going on. Okay, You guys have heard about the churches that, um, um, that actually play around with snakes. You guys have heard about churches like that. You guys have heard the guy on TV selling these special prayer cloths. Right? If you buy one and you bring it into your home, um, it will provide healing for you. Okay, And that is why we have to be careful not to assume that everything that is happening in Acts right, will be a normal part of our church today. God can do anything. And God still does miracles. David Guzik again helps us here. He says this, God seems to be to like doing things in new and different ways. Therefore, we receive whatever is proven to be from the hand of God, but we pursue only that which we have a biblical pattern for. All right, um, last year, I can't remember which month, but we dealt with miracles in depth. And if you want to um, get a robust understanding of the whole idea of miracles and how they work, go on our website and the teaching is on there. Okay, so we've looked at scene one, which helped us see that the miracles are a reality of, you know, of our time. So we're now going to look at scene two. Uh, the misuse of Jesus's name, the misuse of Jesus's name. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Um, and then verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And so back then, Jewish exorcists were very popular um, amongst the people, especially in the city of Ephesus. And so these Jewish exorcists, what they did was they provided a service for the general public. They would go around um, casting out spirits, evil spirits for a living. And so if you had a plumbing issue, what you would do is call a plumber. Okay, if you had um, um, issues with pests, you would call pest control. But whenever someone had an issue with evil spirits in their home or a demon had possessed a friend, they would call these Jewish exorcists to come and solve the problem. Although these exorcists had all sorts of methods and spells and formulas they used um, to, to cast out evil spirits. They were always on the lookout for new ones. And so Paul, what he does, he arrives in Ephesus and he's casting out evil spirits, left, right and center. And his method works every time. He's doing a great job. He's killing it. And so when a group of Jewish exorcists who were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, hear and see the unusual miracles being performed by Paul, they're super blown away. 
So much so that they want to be able to do what Paul um, has been doing. They want to have the same kind of authority he has over evil spirits. And so they start watching him ever so closely to find out what he's actually been doing to get this incredible success with casting out evil spirits. And so they're determined to know his secret formula for healing the sick and casting out evil spirits so that they can start using it themselves. And so after um, watching him closely, they discover that his secret formula is in fact the name of Jesus. In those days, people who practice magic would do this. They would call on the name of anyone they believed had power. And to this day, people in our culture still kind of do something similar. We have a friend um, who actually prays um, um, to, to, to her late mom, okay? And she looks to her, okay? Her late mom who's passed away, um, she looks to her to help her, right? And so as we talk about some of these things, let's not think this is for the ancient world. This kind of, this thing is, a lot of what's happening then is happening now. And so, um, in those days, like I said, people practiced magic. And they would call on the name of anyone they believed had power. And because Jesus was known for successfully casting out evil spirits, he was among a list of names people called on when attempting to expel an evil spirit from a person or a place. And so the seven sons of Sceva think to themselves, if the name of Jesus has been working for Paul, it should definitely work for us. And so one day they hear about a man who is tormented by an evil spirit and see it as an opportunity to experiment using their new magic spell, Jesus' name. They find the demon-possessed man, approach him with caution, and they say to the evil spirit in the man, we command you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of the man. What happens next? Does the new incantation work? Fortunately, it doesn't. In fact, their attempt to cast out an evil spirit using Jesus' name totally backfires. Look at verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? In other words, look, as far as I'm concerned, you don't exist. You don't have any power over me. Like, we, we know about this Jesus guy. We know about his followers. We know about Paul. But you, who are you? Like, who are you? We don't know you. And so this is obviously so embarrassing for the sons of Sceva. But the whole situation gets even worse for them. Look at verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The seven sons of Sceva thought they could just add the name of Jesus to their collection of magic spells, only to discover that the demon they were addressing on this occasion only respected Jesus and Paul, but had no respect for them. 
Why didn't the name of Jesus work for the seven sons of Sceva? Why were they unable to use the name of Jesus to cast out an evil spirit? Why did it work for the Apostle Paul? And not for them. This is why. The sons of Sceva did not have the right to use the name of Jesus because they were not in a right relationship with Jesus. Let me say that again. The reason why it never worked for them is this. They did not have the right to use the name of Jesus because they were not in a right relationship with Jesus. Dennis Johnson, who's a, an author, says this. The attempt by the sons of Sceva to tap into the power of Jesus at a safe distance without submission to Jesus made a mockery of their appeal to his name. Only true servants submissive to his authority does the Lord Jesus delegate authority to advance his kingdom of grace liberating slaves of Satan. The sons of Sceva, this is what they were trying to do. This is what they were thinking. They viewed Jesus as yet another name they could call on to do their job of casting out evil spirits. To them, Jesus' name was a formula they tried to use for their own purposes. They were basically exploiting Jesus' name for their personal gain. It's easy for us to see and look at the sons of Sceva and say to them, hey, like, yeah, it was happening there. It was happening in the ancient world. How it just doesn't apply to us because in our current culture, many people that we know and live with and work with are not into magic spells. Uh, you, you better be careful about that because more people are involved in occult practices than you know. Okay, But the majority probably aren't. We are in a modern, naturalistic, materialistic culture and we don't really have anyone we know that would want to use the name of Jesus um, to cast out demons as a magic spell. We, we just don't. But I think what they were trying to do happens now but it happens in different names. It may look different, but we are very susceptible to the very same thing. Our current culture may not use Jesus as a magic spell for exercising evil spirits, but many in our modern world still use Jesus for their own purposes. Many of uh, many use Jesus as a means to an end, as a stepping stone to get to where they want to actually go. 
To this day, many still exploit the name of Jesus for personal gain. Let me give you some examples. Um, politicians use Jesus to get the Christian vote and improve their popularity ratings among evangelicals. Athletes, right? At times, call on the name of Jesus so that Jesus can give them this supernatural ability and to be faster, to be more disciplined, to actually win a game or win a fight. Parents sometimes use Jesus as simply um, a good role model for their kids. For some, Jesus is like their firefighter or policeman or lifeguard. They only reach out to him when they're in a situation they can't fix. For many in our culture, Jesus Christ is a name they use to express frustration, anger, or surprise. For some, when they ask this popular question, what will Jesus do, right? Nothing wrong with that, but we've got to be careful what the motive is. When we ask the question, what will Jesus do, um, we're simply at times using Jesus as a template to help us live a good and ethical life. We're relating to Jesus like the sons of Sceva whenever we seek to get something from Jesus without a desire to be with Jesus. When Jesus becomes a means to an end, even a good end, we're relating to him in the wrong way. And so my question to you this morning is, who is Jesus to you? What's your relationship with Jesus like? Is Jesus another person or thing you use to get what you want? Or is he truly your Lord and Savior? Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God to you? Is he the King of kings you worship? Or is he to you a means to an end. And so, so far we've seen, scene one, the reality of miracles, scene two, the misuse of Jesus' name. Now let's take a look at scene three, the right response. The right response, verse 17. And this became known, so everything that's happened, right? This miracle's happening, the sons of Sceva um, misusing Jesus' name. Um, everything that has happened, um, this is what it causes. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. As you can imagine, this story is crazy, okay? Um, spreads like wildfire. It spreads so quickly. All the residents of Ephesus hear about it. And because of this, people living in the city are seized with fear. And it says in verse 17, at the last part of 17, the name of the Lord Jesus is extolled. The name of the Lord Jesus is greatly honored. Look at verse 18 and 19. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so um, magic, as we've learned, was a um, part of everyday life in Ephesus, so much so that many Christians, even after being saved, were still involved in magic and occult practices but this incident helped many of them realize that following Jesus and practicing magic were like water and oil they do not mix Dennis Johnson again says they realized for the first time that faith in Jesus and participation in Ephesus in Ephesus's magic and occult industries were incompatible and so they confessed these evil practices and showed the genuineness of their repentance by burning their sorcery books in the sight of all and um, later it says they counted the value of the things and the books that they had burned and it came up to 50,000 pieces of silver some of you are like what is that 50,000 pieces of silver that basically that's a lot of money and what that also means is that what they burnt was very, very valuable to them indeed. Some of the Christians in Ephesus were willing to rid themselves of anything and everything that was associated with pagan practices, even if it came at a great cost. What about you? What are some of the things in your life that you're okay with that you shouldn't be? What are some of the things you're involved in that have the potential to weaken your walk with Jesus? What do you need to seriously consider removing from your life so that you can be consumed with the life of Jesus. For many of the Christians in Ephesus, as we found out, it was books and scrolls full of magic charms and amulets and incantations. I wonder what it is for you. What are you involved in that is, that's just not wise for you to be involved in? And the interesting thing is, for many of you, uh, and the things you need to consider removing from your life may not be sin sinful in and of themselves. They, they're probably good things, but you still need to reconsider removing them from your life because they can easily lead you to sin. For me, one of the things I had to remove from my life was social media. And wait, okay, wait, I'm getting there. Social media is fine. There's nothing wrong with it, okay? And some of you use it. And it's fine for you to use it. But for me, 
what I found was it was taking up too much of my time. Also, it was awakening in me jealousy and a lot of unhealthy thoughts and emotions. And because of this, I said, man, like, I just need to delete this app from my phone. It's just taking up too much time. Every time I scroll through, it's just leading me to having all of these unhealthy thoughts. And so I just decided to delete Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and all of those social media platforms from my phone. And that was me. Okay, I still have access to it only on my laptop, but like an hour a day or something. Okay, when I need to do work and post stuff for the church. But that was it for me. I had to get to a time when I had to consider how social media was making a negative impact on my life. And I had to get rid of it. And so my question again to you is, what about you? What do you need to remove from your life? What are some of the things you're involved in that have the potential to weaken your walk with Jesus? What do you need to remove from your life that may be associated with um, demonic spirits and things? Whatever it is for you, the goal is to rid yourself of these things so that, so that you can be free to fully enjoy and delight in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says this, you will have enough temptation in your own mind without going after these things. <laughs> That's true. Is there any habit, any practice that you have got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you and you come and trust in him, you will make short work of it. Be done with it and be done with it forever. It's from Charles Spurgeon. This is from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. It reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of grace what was this talking about it's saying every weight right doesn't have to be sin, but anything in your life that is preventing you for, from radically living for Jesus, consider removing it from your life. So I wonder what it is for you. As you think now, just note it down, and I, I would highly encourage you, throughout the week, be praying. And saying, God, what is it? What am I involved in? What are some of my practices? What are some of my habits? What are some of the things that are part of my life that Spurgeon said are defiling our soul, are defiling your soul? What is it? Verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. King's Cross Church 
May we have faith to believe God still does miracles today. May we resist the temptation to try to use Jesus for our own benefit. May we trust in the authority of Jesus over evil spirits. May we be, be, may we be willing to part ways with anything or anyone that interferes with our relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. God help us. We've heard your word. And the work you do doesn't stop with us hearing. God help us to believe. And help us to live out everything that we've looked at this morning. May your name be glorified in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.